welcome to our 23rd Rising Tide. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier. And hi, my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of Inland Ocean Coalition. Hello. Hello. And uh, today we're talking to our friend, uh, Greenpeace USA's Ocean Campaign Director, John Hosevar. Uh, John's worked on issues including plastic pollution, sustainable seafood, marine sanctuaries. He's a, a diver and submarine pilot. He's worked on science expeditions from the Arctic to Antarctic. And uh, before Greenpeace, he was a human rights advocate and has always made that connection between human rights and the environment, including more recent issues like at-sea slavery and the illegal fishing sector. So uh, anyway, welcome, John. And, and first, I'm curious, uh, Vicky and I are also divers, but uh, how do you become a submersible pilot? Well, it's funny. It's uh, less... It takes less time than you'd probably think. If you can, you can figure out how to drive a car, you can probably handle driving a submarine. Most of the time is focused on what to do if things go wrong and uh, a fair bit of time on just getting really clear on the communication protocol. So um, you, don't, you don't want it, any extra confusion that you don't need. Down there. And is it, is it, is it a little frightening as you're going very, very deep and it's getting darker and darker? What do, you, what do you feel when you're down there? Well, you're both divers. I think you can probably imagine that it's pretty much just awesome. Uh, it's really <laughs> fantastic. Um, there have been people that I have brought down that were not super comfortable, but for the most part, it's just... It's just such an incredible experience. Anytime you drop down in a submarine, you're almost always going someplace that no one's ever seen before. So when and why did you uh, become a pilot and, and what have you done with it? <laughs> so I remember very well the conversation with my boss um, where I said, so we want to protect the world's largest underwater canyon. So oh, that sounds great. I said, yeah, but unfortunately, the industry, the Alaska factory trawlers are really powerful and they basically captured the regulatory agencies. They kind of control the science that happens out there. So we're going to actually have to do the science ourselves. We're going to have to work with independent scientists, but it's going to be up to us to make this happen. I said, oh, okay, you know, we can, we have ships, we can work with our ships. I'm like, absolutely, that's right. So the other thing is that, you know, I think we're going to need a submarine. And at this point, she's, you know, I didn't quite lose her, but she's starting to get a little bit more like, what are you talking about? And then I said, but, you know, if we're going to do that, don't you think it would make sense to have a Greenpeace pilot so we could be talking about the experience firsthand? And somehow this argument worked. And so <laughs> I went up to uh, British Columbia and worked with Nuco, and uh, they trained me to use their deep worker submarines. And so that was our, our first submarine campaign was um, in the underwater canyons in the Bering Sea. And then since then, we have taken the subs to uh, explore and document the Amazon reef. Um, and that was incredible going down with the scientists that had first tried to describe the kind of the overall structure of it, but they'd never seen the reef. And so came back from this first dive with the lead Brazilian scientist and uh, you know we popped the hatch and he's just so excited that he, you know he's got tears in his eyes and, and he's telling his colleagues our paper is obsolete 
you know, we just learned so much on this dive that, you know, it, it's everything is new. Um, and I think that's one of the amazing things about the sub is just that it's an opportunity to show people how these ecosystems work. Um, you know, so much of what we know about the ocean comes from what we killed and dragged to the surface. And so being able to see the fish and everything else in their natural environment and how they interact with each other can teach us so much. Um, I'd love to see more use of ROVs and subs in the future. Well, you can put David and I on the list of um, visitors if you're looking to expand your, your team. So we'd love to come down with you. That sounds good. One of these days we'll make it happen. So these and are two person submersible submarines, these that you took. And the first one you went and explored in the, the, how deep in the Bering Sea did you go up in the Arctic range? These subs go to just about 600 meters. Uh, so 2000 feet. And uh, the first one we were trying to create new sanctuaries um, in the Amazon, uh, with the Amazon reef, we were trying to prevent big oil companies from getting access to drilling nearby. And uh, so far that's been working. Even, even under Bolsonaro, they haven't changed their mind and given these guys permits to drill. So years later, the oil companies are, some of them have given up and others are pretty close to giving up. Um, we brought subs down to Antarctic waters to support efforts to create some of the largest MPAs in the world, protected areas in the world. And uh, we brought subs to the Gulf of Mexico uh, to assess the scope and impacts of the deep water horizon. So did you get the sanctuaries in the uh, Bering Sea uh, where there's a lot of bottom fishing? You know, the Bering Sea is one of the most frustrating campaigns I've ever been a part of. Uh, really underestimated just how vindictive and short-sighted the factory trawl guys could be. And, you know, it, I think the true motto of the United States is that the customer is always right, but they were so, uh, so nasty, to be honest that even though all of their biggest customers were saying they wanted the trawl fleet to operate differently, that, that they wanted to see some protections, um, these guys are just, you know, we don't care what you say. <laughs> we, were, we were working with you, the Inland Ocean Coalition, <clears throat> during those times. And um, it was very upsetting when it looked like it was not gonna be a successful campaign. Now that we are um, under the Biden administration, and he is supporting 30 by 30, you know, protecting 30% of land and 30% of ocean by 2030. Do you think that this is an opportunity to revisit that campaign and get some protections in that area? Absolutely. Um, oh, it will be really interesting to see how these regional fishery management councils, which have, you know, largely been responsible for creating protected areas or not, within you know within their waters it'll be interesting to see how they respond to this executive order and i think uh this is the kind of leadership that we've needed from the presidential level uh, but still it's going to take a fair bit of work i think before the councils uh really start thinking about a new way to operate
the day we're, we're talking with you, um, President Biden basically said no more drilling on federal lands and waters, which means after four years of fighting Trump administration's attempt to open up 90% of our public seas to oil and gas, uh, this could all be going away. Pretty exciting. I mean, we have a, a lot of work to do to make sure that President Biden uh, shows the leadership that we need from him in this moment. Um, but it, it's been a lot of fun watching him undo some of the most damaging things that, that Trump inflicted on us all uh, in just a few days. And it definitely yeah. gives me a lot of hope for what we can see moving forward. I'm, I'm very excited. Um, you went down to the Gulf of Mexico after the BP horizon spill and spent some time doing an assessment of the damages. Um, what did you find? What are the long-term negative impacts of an oil spill? I think it'll be a long time before we really understand what the true impacts of the Deepwater Horizon blowout were on the Gulf of Mexico ecosystem. Um, but what we saw was that there was oil in the sediments, oil in the water column, hundreds of miles from the wellhead. Uh, we were finding it, you know, much farther than at that point, most scientists were, were thinking of looking. And we saw oil um, being incorporated, being taken up by uh, larvae and, and uh, zooplankton. And so we know that it was going to be going up through the food chain from there. And then, you know, some of the more heartbreaking stuff was right there visible on the surface, watching um, roseate spoonbills, for example, um, dive through oil, collect oiled food, bring it back and feed it to their chicks. And just knowing that those chicks were not going to survive more than a few months, probably. Um, and also seeing, you know, there's so many very, very low lying islands that are critical parts of that ecosystem, whether they're uh, bird rookeries or, or other important habitat. And the oil had covered the entire islands. So knowing that those roots were not going to survive, that the vegetation was going to wash away and, and the islands were going to disappear in some cases. And so since then, we've, we've seen that happen. You know, many of those islands are gone. Um, species that were starting to recover took a real hit, like, uh, well, it's just, you know, whether it was sperm whales or um, some of the seabirds, some of the fisheries, I went to one spot where there were maybe 50,000 dead hermit crabs in just one small area. And it just gives you the sense, you know, this, this spot is no longer able to sustain life. But, um, there, you know, ultimately it, it will take generations to be able to see just how much damage was done. I remember meeting up with you uh, in 2010 during the spill in, in Louisiana going offshore and you know, the disaster that's ongoing from the spills that we've been fighting since at least the Santa Barbara spill in 1969. And then as the science advances, you realize when they don't spill into the ocean, they spill into our atmosphere. This is like one of those products used as directed, overheats your planet and acidifies your oceans. So it just seems that, you know, we're finally reaching the point with the new administration of recognizing that, you know, Coal and oil were great energy systems of the 16th and 19th centuries, but we really well past time to move on. 
So Greenpeace has always been sort of on the cutting edge and raising awareness around these issues, whether it's, you know, saving the whales in the 1970s or saving our planet today. Another form of oil, of course, is plastic. And I know that's one of the big campaigns you've been involved in, you and, uh, as Greenpeace Ocean Director. Um, what, what are some of your plastic activities? Yeah, ultimately, we are out to get rid of single-use plastic. You know, we we're quite sure that we can't really solve the problems of, of plastic unless we deal with it at the source. We have to just stop making and using so much of it. We can't recycle our way out of it. We can't treat this as just a waste management issue. Um, and as you mentioned, it's a significant climate problem. And plastic is made from fossil fuels. It's helping drive the uh, fracking boom and, and um, new build out of petrochemical facilities. Uh, it's a huge racial justice issue, an environmental justice issue that, um, you know, first there's the fracking that's contaminating uh, people's water supplies, but then when you refine it and start actually turning it into plastic, those facilities tend to be really dangerous for the communities um, around them and they're usually black and brown communities. Um, and then, you know, once you use the plastic, there's no good answer for what to do with it. If you burn it, you're going to pollute the air, the water and the soil. If you put it into a landfill, it's going to leach into our water and soil. Um, and again, those facilities tend to be in low income communities as well. John, a couple of years ago, I saw you at EarthX and it was an opportunity to talk with a number of industry leaders, actually some of those representatives from Coca-Cola, Nestle, some of the, the biggest single-use producers. And then you um, teamed up with Soul Buffalo to do something innovative. I guess it's, what would you call it, an, an ocean plastics field trip to really try to get onto the ocean with these leaders to talk about the plastic pollution but not only that, you're like sharing bathrooms and living in small quarters for a while on the ocean. How did that experience um, impact the future of plastic pollution? And what are some things that have come out of that? That was the beginning of the Ocean Plastic Leadership Network. And it brought together a lot of corporate executives and some uh, environmentalists, a few scientists, uh, a couple policymakers, and force some challenging conversations. Um, you know, if you are if you're on a boat together, there's there's no escaping. Um, and so, we brought people out into the water, and you know, looked at some of the microplastics concentrated in the Atlantic gyre in the Sargasso Sea, and we started a conversation that will probably be going on for quite a while about what to do with it. And you know, the good thing about plastic pollution is that everybody, whether it's you know my mom or the vice president of Coke or Nestle understands that it's a problem and that we need to do something. Unfortunately, most of these companies are still trying to pretend that we can deal with this just as, just as a, a waste problem instead of taking responsibility for the fact that we just can't keep making all this stuff, trillions of throwaway items 
that we use for a few seconds or a few minutes, and they're made out of something that essentially lasts forever. And how did Greenpeace see itself changing direction as we move from defense under the Trump administration to a new administration that says it wants to take action on, on climate? It's pretty different thinking about moving from defense to offense and, and hopefully collaboration uh, and seeing how much we can do in the first 90 days. And you know, the first couple of weeks has been a great indication of what might be possible. Um, with this new executive order saying that we need to protect 30% of our lands and waters by 2030, um, that sends exactly the right kind of message. And, and one of the big changes is that, you know, it's clear that this administration is going to be a little bit more interested in what the science tells us is necessary. And that's, you know, that has to be the starting point for, for all of us. For and that's to be refreshing effective. to incorporate science into decision-making. I think a lot of us have been frustrated, not I think, I know a lot of us have been frustrated. So it's, um, it is a good feeling. Um, it's but I, I, almost an odd feeling, you know, science, <laughs> civility, and competence in government. Wow. It, um, it, does feel like we've uh, just gotten out of an abusive relationship. You really understand the links between the environment and human rights. Uh, you you started, uh, I think, working around free to bed, and more recently, you've worked with some of our other friends and subjects like Ian Urbina to deal with ATSI slavery. I think you know it's possible to talk about environmental issues without thinking about the impacts on people, but why would you do that? Um, so often it's, it, you know, we will accomplish a lot more. We will reach more people if we acknowledge that these things are connected. And tuna fisheries are a great and also terrible example of that. And with, with industrial fisheries in general, you know, we, we eaten most of the world's large fish. And so that makes it a lot more expensive for these fishing companies to go out and catch fish, right? They have to spend more time and money looking for the same amount of fish. And to cut costs, they um, often stop paying workers a living wage. You know, they, we see major problems with forced labor, with human trafficking, with debt bondage, workers being tricked into jobs and then having to pay to get those jobs. And the costs are much higher than what they actually earn. So they essentially have to work for free. And that, unfortunately, all that terrible, all this, all the human rights and labor issues bring down the costs of these fisheries and enable them to keep more boats on the water. And so that just further drives overfishing. So it's, it's this spiral that we need to break out of. It makes sense that the Pentagon sees climate change as one of the biggest threats to national security. You know, stress on resources, climate refugees, it's just food security, really significant problems that are going to affect us all. And as is often the case, disproportionately affect poor people. Don, you've been doing this for a couple of decades. On a positive note, what, what have been the most rewarding um, components of working for Greenpeace and addressing all of these issues? What are a couple of your, your big, exciting accomplishments? I was really happy to see that our work in Antarctic waters with the sub were, was able to immediately get several areas protected and it strengthened the case to create some very, very large sanctuaries that I'm optimistic that will be adopted, you know, in the next year or two. Um, how that worked, my, tell us how that worked specifically. 
Sure. So uh, in Camelar, which is the body that's responsible for managing the waters around Antarctica, um, there are measures that basically, if you can demonstrate that there are vulnerable marine ecosystems, um, they can be protected basically all automatically just on the, on the basis of the science. And so the indicator species which show that are things like corals and sponges and a few others. So we um, were able to take the sub down in areas that were within very large protected area proposals. And um, you have no idea where you're going to find, right? I mean, no one's been to this spot, so who knows? Uh, you could spend all this time and money and you know, risk everything to get to this place and it could have been scoured completely clean by a glacier last year and you'd never know. Um, because these things can drop down hundreds of meters. Um, and so everything down there is really patchy. But instead we found places that were just spectacularly carpeted with every color in the rainbow uh, and all animals. You know, this is below where sunlight can penetrate. So no plants, every possible relative of starfish that you could imagine. And um, just, you know, truly beautiful. And one of the things as a marine biologist that is so amazing is every single thing that we saw only lives in the Antarctic. They were, every single thing was endemic to the region. And so we were able to bring that video back uh, to the scientists at Camelar and were able to get several new areas protected. And you know, they're, they're not large, so it's just the beginning, but it really does help strengthen the case that we need a network of large scale protected areas because we just don't know what's down there. We can't uh, begin to imagine how many vulnerable marine ecosystems there are within the, the waters under Camelar's uh, responsibility. And give us some, um, that Camelar is an acronym. Can you tell us what it actually is? Yeah, it's the, one of the worst acronyms ever. Um, it's the Commission for the Cons the Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. Excellent, very good. Good Thank memory, you. and you've you've uh, I've been there. So Antarctica has got to be one of your top spots on the ocean. But uh, you've been around a lot with uh, Greenpeace, and uh, what 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 are some of your other ocean spots you've been to and uh, where's your favorite dive spots? It's hard to be Antarctica, truly. Um, you know, I, oh, and I forgot to mention that uh, we also brought the subs up to the Arctic uh, to fight shells proposed drilling up there. Wow. And that was, that was pretty amazing. But Antarctica is, um, you add mountains and penguins on top of everything else. And uh, it just, it's impossible. You don't even know where to look. You know, you're trying to look at an iceberg and the, there's so much more compelling than you'd think a chunk of ice floating in the water should be. There's shapes and colors that you've never seen anywhere. And then there's penguins jumping off of the icebergs and then a whale will pop up in front of all of them. And then there's the mountains behind them with the snow and, and then the light will change and everything looks different. You, you, you never know what to look, look at. I've, I've been there, I admit, one of the most amazing places to spend time. But for journalistic honesty, penguins up close, 
nasty, filthy, stinky animals. No, admit it. They stink. It's true. But, you know, I'm staying out of this conversation. (laughs) I I have to admit, I barely remember the smell at all. What I remember is just how ridiculously cute they are. Uh, You know, any I've never seen a cartoon that does them justice They're They are that crazy cute. So to go back to the need for protection of the Antarctic, what are the threats? What are we protecting the Antarctic from? So as we're looking forward to that, um, I know there's canyons, there's some fishing issues, drilling, but give us a, a, the scope. Well, good news is that Greenpeace and others were able to protect Antarctica from mining, which was a big threat 50 years ago. Um, now the big threats are climate change, as we have everywhere. Um, some parts of Antarctica are, are warming faster than almost anywhere else on Earth, which is a big concern to all of us, given how much fresh water is trapped in Antarctic ice. Uh, you know, that's when, when some of those ice sheets start to melt, that's when our sea level rises quite a bit, very quickly. And those are the kinds of tipping points that we really want to avoid. Aside from climate change, uh, the big threat is fishing. And so there are two main fisheries. One is toothfish. And so there they're mostly using bottom long lines um, to you know, catch these big ugly fish that uh, are slow growing and they don't, you know, they don't have huge numbers of eggs like some, some of the fish that we're usually uh, targeting in fisheries. So they're pretty vulnerable to industrial fishing. And then the other is krill. And so similar to Menhaden, we scoop up enormous amounts of krill. They're, um, you know, shrimp-like crustaceans, tiny little guys, and they are food for penguins. And, um, you know, they're critical to the health of the whole ecosystem. Yeah. to a short, uh, trophic levels there, short food web. And if the krill are gone, the penguins, the whales, you know, most, most of life in Antarctica goes with them. And uh, they also, uh, you know, they're vital for sequestering carbon. I mean, this is a spectacular, massive, and yet surprisingly fragile system at risk down there. That's right. So hopefully that will be one of the priorities um, and really we'll try to get some of that percentage from the 30 by 30 um, targeted to that region because it sounds like it really needs it. It's really difficult to imagine truly sustainable fisheries that don't involve a network of protected areas to help uh, protect biodiversity, to help rebuild depleted populations, to help teach us what an intact ecosystem looks like. So in 2021, I know you and Greenpeace will be joining uh, this spring, April 13 and 14, a citizens lobby for ocean climate action. Um, There's legislation, there's opportunities for education. Um, What else are you looking forward to in 2021? What's the big uh, work projects you're gonna be doing in the next 100 days and beyond? Hopefully some of them will be easy, uh, like, We would like to see President Biden very quickly reverse the current, still, U.S. position opposing a new global plastic treaty. Uh, So we'd like to see the the U.S. 
take some leadership on that for a change, which would be spectacular. Um, we uh, have a lot of work to do to continue to push these big polluting companies to get their act together and actually start taking responsibility for uh, their plastic packaging and, and commit to phase out the worst of it and to um, start moving towards elimination of single-use plastic. We wanna see them invest in reuse, refill and package-free approaches. We um, think that this could be a big year for getting the Biden administration to continue on some of the good things that happened under Trump actually, uh, to hold Taiwan and some of the other uh, countries responsible for um, the worst human rights abuses on fisheries accountable. And I think this could be a big year for the fight against deep sea mining. If we're able to get the big tech companies, for example, to say we're not interested in sourcing metals uh, that came from deep sea mining, that might be enough to signal to the big investors that deep sea mining just isn't actually worth worth trying to scale up. What's your ocean pleasure, John? For the the short version is is what do you do? What are you going to do to uh, get your get your stoke out of the ocean? I cannot wait to get back in the water. I love open ocean swimming. That's all I really need. But snorkeling, diving, I mean, sure, if we can get a submarine, even better. Uh, but pretty much anything on or in the water is is going to be very high on my list for this year. And thanks for joining us on Rising Tide, John. Thank Thank you. you. Pleasure. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.